Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. True Crime Uncensored, I am the legendary Burl Bearer. Guy over there, that's Mark Boyer, our fact checker. Go I certainly hope so. Producing the show is Magic Matt Allen. He's famous. And on the phone, hey, Chip. How you yes, doing, sir. pal? How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Better and better every day in every way, and I'm glad to say you're not in prison. <laughs> yes, I'm very much of the same uh, volition there. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you locked up. You know, years ago when I first started doing this show, uh, almost 15 years ago, we had a guest on the show named Willis Wilson, who, similar to you, was falsely accused of a horrifying series of crimes. And uh, I think there's a curse with people with a double W names. <laughs> yeah, that, that double W can be, uh, I guess, maybe not so lucky. <laughs> not so lucky after all. Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, so oh, I, that? Oh, yeah, we want to start at the beginning. No, we just start in the middle and work sideways. <laughs> work sideways. <laughs> well, I think this this case about made our guests go sideways. Oh, yeah, it did. <laughs> there you were, minding your own business. <laughs> start at the beginning. Who you are and how you happen to wind up in your kitchen with a gun in your hand shooting somebody. Okay. So, uh, again, name's Wade Williamson. I live in uh, South Carolina, and I lived in a little small town called Darlington for a lot of my earlier years, and then in 2010, I moved down here to Charleston. So the issue of how I got tied in with this incident that's kind of reshaped my life was me and my wife have been together for an extended period of time. Yeah. And then we both decided it was it was just a lot. I'd seen a friend. I'd walked in on a friend that had committed suicide. Um, I was also not long before this, a couple of years prior, in a real bad auto wreck. That I didn't I didn't lose my job, but I lost my position within the company, so I had to change and go to a different position. So it was kind of a lot of stuff, you know, being compacted on one another. Yeah, a lot of pressure. And especially after seeing that suicide, um, we wound up splitting up. Yeah. And the deal we made was that I was going to move out. I would pay all the bills. But if she decided to start seeing someone, then it, in that event, then I was going to move back and then she would move out. So well, That sounds fairly complicated, but sounds like the two of you were communicating at least. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very amicable. Um, we just really at the end of the day, looking back now, I think we just needed a break. Of course, you know, in the heat of the moment, you think things are permanent, but I think what it was, we just needed a break, you know, to kind of reassess your everything. Collectively. Yeah. yeah, make sense of everything. But in any event, uh, she did wind up meeting someone. And then in November of 2017, uh, she moved in to a house with them, and then I come back to my home. And at that point, we were looking to get a divorce. Like, we had already had a divorce lawyer. A date was set. Um, so that was that was the immediate plan. Well, fast forward to December. We were communicating as far as, like, what we were going to do with our kids and, you know, seeing them for Christmas and whatnot. And it just kind of was like, you know, how's things going with you? How's things going on your end? Mm-hmm. And we kind of started, I guess, rekindling, you know, seeing that we did actually miss each other. And we still weren't to the point to where we didn't know if we wanted to give it another go. But 
I think that was kind of like the first sign that there was still something there. Right. And so off and on until like April, we would kind of talk. And at this point, the guy no longer lived with her. He only stayed there from November to about January. Um, they didn't completely break it off, but he wasn't living with her at her home right. at that time. So around April, uh, we kind of decided, hey, we're going to give this another go. You know, she wanted to make sure I was 100% with it. I wanted to make sure she was 100% with it. So we decided we were going to give it a go. We were with her parents um, Easter weekend. Told everybody there that we were going to, you know, get back together, get it one more shot. And we went to the beach, hung out, come back. This was over spring break. Right. When we come back uh, Friday, I was like, all right, well, obviously, you know, you got to break the news to the guy that, you know, he's, he's going to have to hit the bricks and I'll, I'll get you moved back in here. So Friday night, I was expecting this to happen. Saturday morning, we go to my son's soccer game. And he, when I seen her come up, I was asking her how it went. And she said she didn't get a chance to do it. The guy come in, said he wasn't feeling good, took something and went right to sleep. She said, I'm going to do it, you know, this evening after the soccer game. So I'm like, okay. So that's what I, you know, what I thought was going to take place. Right. Which it did. Now, once she kind of gave him the news, he really kind of, can I curse on here? No, yes, you can curse on here. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Okay, so he basically kind of lost his shit, and he smashed her phone, so the communication between her and I at that point was non-existent because he smashed her phone, headbutted her, roughed her up some, and then at this point, he makes her get in the car to ride and look for me because he's thinking that, you know, she's telling him that she's going to come back to me, we're going to give it another shot. He's thinking that there's been something going on that he's not privy to, so that's why he's upset. Yeah. So he's making her ride around our neighborhood to look for me. Now, we've got a pretty big neighborhood, and it's, it's kind of like one community, but like four different subdivisions inside that community, so a lot of houses, and he knows I'm somewhere in the area, so he's making her ride around to look for me because right. I'm not at my home at this particular time. <clears throat> well, he stops by a friend of mine's house that he kind of knew some somewhat of what was going on, maybe not everything to the T, but he knew you know, the overall situation. And he sees them stop outside of the house, so he walks out. He was in his garage. He walks out and was like, hey, guys, what's going on? And he said, oh, I'm just looking for, I think, I think the specific term he called me was fuckhead, but he said, when I find fuckhead, I'm going to kill him. Oh, that's lovely. So he, yeah, yeah, I mean, real pleasant greeting he was trying to give me there. <laughs> and the guy's like, you know, well, what's going on, man? And so I guess he's trying to get, you know, figure out what's going on, get his finger on the pulse of the situation. So the guy winds up staying there, and my wife goes back to her house because uh, she didn't know where I was either because, like I said, she didn't have a phone. So this is probably, I would say, around 6 or, six or 7 o'clock p.m. Right. So about 9, uh, I get a call from the guy whose house he was at. And he tells me, you know, hey, if you ride by my house and you see the guy's car here, you know, I don't want you to think, you know, nothing or whatever, but I've got him here. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I know he's really upset. He said, I'm just giving you a heads up. But if you ride by and see his car here, like, don't stop because I don't want anything going on at my house. Right. And I said, well, I got a pretty good idea why he's upset, but I got you. I won't stop. So I didn't hear anything until my daughter got off from work, which is and now at this point is probably like 10, 30, 11. 
she gets home, my wife uses her phone to call me. She kind of lets me know what's going on. And she's like, it's fine. He's not even here. He's at Jamie's house, which was the guy's name down the street from right. me. So fast forward there. I'm thinking he's at Jamie's. I'm home. I'm watching the UFC. Uh, you know, it's probably 12, 31 o'clock at this point. Then all of a sudden I get a text message from the guy. And he says, hey, are you awake? And I said, yeah, I'm awake. And he said, you feel like talking? And I said, about what? And he said, I really think that I'm not getting the truth. And he said, I think you'll give it to me. And he said, if you're more comfortable, we can meet at your friend's house down the street. He's like, if you think I'm trying to, you know, set you up or anything, he said, I just want to talk. He said, I don't want no drama, no BS. This is all in text message in our phones, conversations between me and him. Right. So I said, yeah, that's fine, because my dude down the street, he's a pretty big dude. He's former Coast Guard. He's a he's a built guy. If I, anything was going to go sideways, I had 100% confidence that he would help me out. Because, mind you, a piece of this backstory is I had recently had a procedure on my back like a week before this, so I'm nowhere near capable of being able to physically, you know, go at it with someone. So that's right. And I think he didn't know that, but I think that's why he offered to go there to kind of set me at ease. Mm-hmm. So I agreed, and we go down. And when I say down the street, I'm literally talking from my driveway to his driveway is like six houses. And these houses, I'm sure you've seen in these communities, they're right beside each other. So, you know, you're talking 150 yards at best. Right. So we go down there. Yep. And basically what he wants to know is, like like he asked, you know, hey, she's telling me she's leaving, coming back to you. Have y'all been, you know, seeing each other without my knowledge and behind my back? And I'm like, well, to start with, you know, I'm still my wife. So <laughs> I was like, the divorce ain't final yet, so it's really none of your fucking business. But to answer your question, no. I said, we just decided we're going to give it another shot. You know, it's what we want to do. It's what's good for our kids. And, and that's that. And so it maybe got heated once or twice, but then it just kind of leveled off, and it was really three guys just talking in a garage. It was up under some strange circumstances, obviously, but it was just three dudes talking in a garage. Now, at this point, it's probably 3.30-ish, you know, that we're talking about different things. It gets to about 4, and the guy whose house that we're in, uh, he's like, hey, I'm fixing to shut it down. He's like, he's asking the other guy, said, do you want to stay here? Or you won't wait to carry you home? And he's like, I, I'll have him carry me home. So he's like, all right, you good with that? And I said, yeah, I'm cool. And so he shuts the garage and we get in the car. Well, when he gets in the car, he's like, hey, he said, if you carry me home, he's like, we're just going to start arguing again. He said, you know how she can be when things aren't good? And I said, oh, yeah, I know. I've lived with her for a while. I, I get what you're saying. And he said, do you care if we just hang out at your house? And so I thought it was odd for him to ask that, but then he started telling me this story. He held up his wrist, and he was showing me a bracelet that he had. And he's like, do you know why I wear this bracelet? I'm like, no, I don't have a clue. And he proceeded to tell me the story about this guy he was in the Army with. And he said we were in combat, and he said the guy got shot in the head, and he said I was doing what I could to save him, but the Army said I didn't follow proper procedure and proper protocol so that's why I got discharged from the Army, and this is his initials on this bracelet. And the guy was crying. Like, sitting in the car with me, he was crying. Like, man tears crying. And I could tell it upset him. Well, I found out after all this took place that that whole story was probably about 80% fabricated. What actually happened was this guy was intelligence. 
and he gave that guy intel to enter into some area where when he did, he got shot in the head. And that's why he got booted out of the Army, yeah, because yeah. he gave the guy bad intel that led to him ultimately being shot in the head. Still probably bothered him, I'm sure. And I know it bothered him. I could tell that wasn't a put-on. Like, he was really upset, and he was very emotional in telling the story. And so with the way he was telling him that, I'm thinking that this guy really, like, you know, he's got this on his mind. He's getting kind of the told that he's not going to have a relationship, you know, now. So he's probably just, like, really kind of just down. And so we go on in my house, and for probably the first hour, it's just, you know, shooting the shit, talking about this, talking about that. We're walking around my house. I'm kind of showing him things. And like I said, it was weird because of the circumstance, but it didn't really seem like nothing was off. It never got intense. It never got physical. We were talking about, you know, our kids. He had kids. Obviously, he knew that I had kids. We were talking about a lot of different things. And then we get on the subject of tattoos. Now, I've got quite a many of tattoos. I've got sleeves on both arms, you know, a few on the chest area. And when I showed him one of them on my chest, he noticed that I had a zipper scar from when I had a open heart surgery my senior year in high school. So he could see the zipper where I was opened up. Right. And he was like, you know, damn, what's that scar? And I was like, I had open heart surgery, you know, my senior year in high school. So he lifts up my shirt from the bottom. And then he, you could see the scar. When doing this, he had to be able to see at that point that I had the gun on the, the side of my waistband there. I mean, there's no way he couldn't have seen it. Well, he sees that, and he's like, man, he's like, you know, you're cool in my book, dude. He's like, you know, we would have probably been friends up under different circumstances. And then you know how when guys have had one too many drinks or whatever, they go to hug somebody and kind of like bear hug them and try to pick them up off the ground? Yeah. Well, he did that, and I wasn't thinking much of it, but he, you know, he put me right back down. Well, then he asked to go to the bathroom. He's like, you know, where's your restroom? So I point him to the restroom, and then I'm sitting like up against my stove. Well, and at this point, I hadn't communicated with my wife in quite a while, and I was just, I sent her a text, and I was like, hey, everything's cool, you know, getting along, you know, not to worry about anything. Almost as soon as I send this text, he comes out of the bathroom immediately with his left hand, grabs me around the throat, like lifts me up onto the damn stove almost. I'm kind of pinned in between. You know, you have that uh, microwave right above the stove. Right. I'm kind of pinned up in there. I'm trying to wiggle my way out. I get down. He's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And, I mean, it just it was out of nowhere. And I was just like, what the hell? And he tries to come up with his, his knee and, like, knee me in the side. So I kind of twist my body a little bit to where I... I don't really get hit dead with the knee. And I'm telling him, I'm like, dude, if you don't get the fuck off me, I'm going to shoot you. And so he cocks back with his right hand like he's pushing me back because he was a big guy. We're almost going into the corner of my kitchen. So he cocks back with his right hand. He's coming across, and I see it coming. And the best I can, because he's still got me by the throat, I try to lift up just a little bit, and he kind of clips me on my chin. Well, in doing that, his force, you know, goes over with his right hand. He lets go with his left and he's kind of stumbling to the right. Well, he's already coming back at me again cause after he let go. And at that point, I pulled out the gun, and I shot. Um, I thought it was two times. Come to find out it was actually three. I didn't realize that until later, because as soon as he went down, I immediately picked up the phone. I called 911. And a lot was made about the, the phrasing of the words I used, but when I when she answered the 911 operator, 
I just said the first thing that come to my mind, I was like, I said, I had a friend of mine in my house. It got out of hand. He started hitting me. I had no choice. I had to shoot him. So everybody made a big deal about me saying, you know, a friend of mine when he really wasn't a friend. But I'm like, I didn't really think that telling that 911 operator, all right, well, let me tell you this story before you get in the ambulance to come on over here and work with me. That's a simple way to express it, yeah. Yeah, it was just a way that, like, that wasn't the important part. The important part was he shot. You need to send an ambulance over here. So, you know, that was a big deal made of later. But, you know, I tell him what's going on, and she's like, you know, is he breathing? And I'm like, well, he's, he's making noises. He, he sounds like he might be breathing. So she's like, can you go find a towel to put on him? I said, yeah. So I run to my bathroom downstairs, the one he just come out of. I rip the towel off it. It actually rips like the bar that the towel just kind of sits on. It ripped that completely off the wall. I come back. I lift up his shirt, and I only see two entrance wounds, which is kind of what made me think there was only two shots. Well, I put the towel there, and, and mind you, these were uh, full metal jackets, so not hollow points or anything like that. So it's not like you see in the movies when you see somebody shoot somebody and blood just flies like all over the wall behind them. That didn't happen in this case. I'm not saying some guns or some ammunition don't have that effect, but in my case, it didn't. I never seen a drop of blood this whole time. Even when I lifted up his shirt to see the entrance wounds, it was very like very small holes, and it just looked just like a hole in the skin, like if you just stabbed somebody with a pencil. What uh, a very small hole? What weapon and caliber? It was a nine millimeter Smith and Wesson. Okay. And um, like I said, just regular steel jacket rounds. And what happened here, and this, this would work out to be key later on that we found out, two shots were through and through in one stadium. One shot that come through hit my refrigerator door handle, then hit the refrigerator, and then ricocheted off and hit the wall. So that one, you know, almost had a clear path of how it come from, and you could tell where I was standing. The other one went through and hit a 24-pack of water, like Aquafina water that was sitting beside my refrigerator to the left. And the cops actually didn't even find that bullet. I found it, like days after all this had taken place. We had to call them to come back out to document it because once we noticed that a bottle kept leaking, and that's how we found it. But to, to not jump ahead, so I'm, I'm holding the towel on the guy, you know, telling him how to get here. They can come on in when they get here. I go out, and the guy says, you know, look, you're not under arrest. We're just, you know, putting the cuffs on you till we can figure out what's going on and assess the situation. So I said, okay. Now, at this point, mind you, I don't, I don't feel, I don't fear being arrested because I was attacked. I was in my own home. This was my carry weapon that I've been pulled over with before with the numbers ran on it. I was a CWP holder. I had been for years. Um, I'd owned guns since I was 18 years old, and I've never been in trouble. Like, the worst thing that I had in my life at this point in time was a speeding ticket. So I'm not thinking that this is going to lead to an arrest. Obviously, my adrenaline's pounding, but I'm still not thinking that, you know, it's going to lead to an arrest. So I'm in the car. Uh, it felt like forever. I'm sure maybe it wasn't that long. At that point, a lady did come over, another female cop that arrived later, and did read me my rights. She told me I was going to be arrested, and she read me my rights. So she asked that I want to talk, you know, and answer any questions, and I said no. I was out an attorney. So I'm in the back of the car. This happening. I mean, this is like, by this time now, it's like 6.30 in the morning, so it's daylight. 
cops are lining the street, all the way down the street. There's ambulances, like the SUVs, off-duty cops. Everybody's looking out their window, trying to figure out what the hell is going on so early outside. People are riding by to see what's going on. They're seeing me in the back of the cop car. Now, I'm, it's probably like 8.30 or 9 o'clock at this point. And one of them was walking by, and I was like, hey, I said, I got to use the bathroom. And he was like, you're going to have to hold it. And I'm like, nah, boss, that ain't an option. Like, I'm going to either use it in this car or you can let me go in that house. But, like, it's it's about to go down one way or the other. I can't hold it anymore. So they let me out, and he said, this is your home? And I said, yeah, I live here. So we go in. They let me use the bathroom. They carry me upstairs, and I take off all my clothes that I have on and give it to them to collect for evidence. So shirt, pants, shoes, belt, and I think that was it. So I put on some different clothes, and the one of the detectives on scene, he said, is there somewhere you can go while we finish doing our investigation? And I said, yeah. I said, I got a buddy out here who lives around the corner. I said, I can go there until you finish. And so I give him that guy's address. Now, by this time, my mom's already been notified. She lives about an hour and a half, two hours away. She's already been notified, so she's there. A lot of people are there. So I leave, and they're, they're, it's like I'm no longer under arrest. Uh, they just they told me to leave. So I go to that guy's house, and I'm hanging out over there. He's cooking and cooking some breakfast, and I'm waiting. And then that detective comes driving by in his SUV. And so I walk out there, and he's like, uh, you know, just a few guys are left to finish. He was like, when can you come in and answer some questions for us? And I said, well, whenever y'all want. I said, but I'm not coming in without a lawyer. And he said, well, who's your lawyer? Well, at the time, I didn't have a lawyer for this. Like I said, I'd never been in trouble. But I, I gave him the name of the guy that I was using for the divorce, who happened to be a former cop. And so he knew him. And he was like, okay, I know him. He's like, I'll get with him you know, tomorrow, and we'll set up a time for you to come in. And I'm like, okay. And I said, so I'm free to go back home? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, there is there any mess, like anything y'all got to clean up? And he said, we don't clean up that. He said, that's not our problem. And I was like, oh, well, in actuality, he's telling the truth. Like, they're not they're not liable for any sort of cleanup after a crime. Like, that is totally on me to have taken care of. So I go back over there, and there's literally nothing. Like, on the floor, there's, no, there's like, enough of smeared blood on the floor that it was gotten up with one paper towel. And that was it. That was the extent of the cleanup. So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, just trying to, you know, process everything. I called my lawyer and he's like, yeah, just get with me tomorrow. This is Sunday morning by this time. This whole thing took place late Saturday night. Now it's like Sunday morning. He's like, come to my office tomorrow and we'll write up a statement. So I go to the office, his office Monday morning, write up a statement. He submits it to him. Then this is Monday evening and Tuesday he calls me. And he said, hey, I got some bad news. And that's not ever something you want to hear your lawyer say. And he goes, they're charging you with murder. And I'm like, why? Like, what? What reasoning? And he's like, I don't know. He said, they didn't give me a reason. He just said they're charging you with murder. He said, if I had to guess, he's like, they're going to try to paint you as like a jealous husband who, who shot the boyfriend. I'm like, well, that ain't, that ain't who was jealous, boss. Like, he was the one that was upset. Like, he was getting his walking papers. I said, you know, our breakup happened, you know, months before this. I said, it's kind of the reverse role now. He's the one getting up. You know, he's the one finding out that, 
you know, his his relationship is no longer going to be there. And he said, look, I know what you're telling me. He said, I don't know why they're making this decision, but they're making it. So uh, was this, this guy, was it first or second degree? It was first. It didn't even say second degree murder. Wow. It's a charge yeah. of murder. Yes, premeditated. premeditated. That is really bizarre. Yeah, I mean, like, the premeditation should go out the window when you see him texting me, asking me to meet. Like, I, I can't control what that man asked. He, he texted me. Yeah, and so that, yeah but, that's really weird. Yeah, and that's why the even guy even told me, he said, the only reason I can think that they'd done it murder, just straight murder, was because they may plead it down later. He's like, because you can always go down. You just, you know, it's difficult to go up. Yeah. Um, yeah. He said, so that was his thinking of maybe why they did it in the beginning, but that never changed. It stayed that way the whole way. Well, the the lawyer that I had, like I said, he was a good lawyer, but I didn't, I wasn't really up to snuff on his experience in this kind of a case. So I started making phone calls to people that I knew and, you know, hey, well, who's the best criminal defense lawyer in Charleston, my area? And I kept getting the same name thrown at me. Even people that lived out of state, everybody said Andy Savage, Andy Savage, Andy Savage. So I'm like, oh, I guess that's my guy. So I called him this after hours. I leave a message, kind of telling him what's going on. He calls me back. And I'm like, look, I'm supposed to be turning myself in tomorrow at like 12 o'clock. And he's like, is that what I told you? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, be in my office at 7 in the morning. I was like, okay. So we all go to his office at 7 in the morning. And he's like, I'm going to try to get your surrender push back. So I kind of tell him the overall story of what's going on, and he just doesn't get it. He's like, you know, why are we here? He's like, this sounds like clear-cut self-defense. And I said, well, it is. I'm like, I don't know why we're here either. So he makes a phone call. He automatically gets it pushed back to Friday for me to surrender. So I got a couple, I got another day or two, you know, up under my belt. So in the meantime, they start getting character letters from people that I know uh, to present in front of the judge for bond. Just kind of getting everything ready for a bond hearing. Right. He actually winds up getting it pushed all the way till Sunday for me to have to turn myself in. So I know I'm getting an extension all the way to like Sunday. I think it was one o'clock they wanted me in. So we're prepping everything for bond. Luckily, you can't get a bond for murder by a magistrate. You've got to see get seen by the circuit court. Well, the circuit court, and I'm not sure how it works where you guys are, but the circuit court here in, in South Carolina, in Charleston area where I'm at, it rotates from county to county. So depending on when you go in, just say if it just left, then you've got to stay in until it rotates back around to your county. Luckily, the week I was in was the week it was in my county. Hmm. So we negotiated me to turn myself in on Sunday. We actually had like I had a lot of people at my house Saturday night. We cooked, just kind of had a little, it was tense, but like a little get together. You know, I definitely don't want to call it a party. It wasn't a party, but you know, just to get together with family. And then Sunday, it was kind of like uh, Ray Liotta from the movie Goodfellas. You know, he goes and gets in the car and tells him just to take him to jail. And that's exactly what it was. My wife and me were in the back and my mom actually drove to drop me off at the jail cell. Um, and see now this time I'm still not a hundred percent sure if I'm going to get bond because that's, that's not an easy thing to do when you're being charged with murder. A lot of times they don't even grant bond, but my lawyer felt with my clean background, you know, I think we had like 65 character letters put together in just a few days. He thought we had a very good shot at making bond. 
So I go in, um, they fingerprint me and everything. And now mind you, I've never been to jail before. Like I've never been locked up for anything. So I don't know how any of this stuff is supposed to go. And there's a guy in there talking to me on the bench and he's like, bench of shame, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I guess you can say that. So we get fingerprinted, picture taken, we go to holding, and he's still just talking. I, he was picked up on DUI, so he's just, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and I'm not saying nothing. I'm just being quiet. I don't know what, you know, what. I'm just being quiet, trying to mind my own business. So they take me, him, and this other little young kid that was in there for like a marijuana possession, and we go see the magistrate. Well, I'd already been told, you know, the magistrate can't do nothing for me, but it's a formality that you have to go in front of the magistrate. So we're all cuffed up, you know, wrist to ankles, and uh, he's going down the line. He gives the first kid, you know, possession of marijuana, we'll do a PR bond for you. Next guy, second offense, DUI, I got to get a, you know, $10,000 bond. Then he comes to me, reads out my name, Wade Williamson, you're charged with murder in the first degree and possession of weapon during a violent crime. We were all sitting on this bench. That guy that had been talking to me so much for the last hour slid as far to the other end of the bench <laughs> as you could get, like damn near out the window almost. And then when we got transferred back into the holding room, he comes up and gets his blanket, and that's like an all-in-one blanket pillow type thing. He gets that and goes to the far other side of the room, and I didn't hear nothing out of the guy the rest of the time he was in there. <laughs> but at least that worked to my benefit because I got a little peace and quiet. <laughs> So this was all Sunday night. I stay in there Sunday night. Monday, I'm getting seen by the circuit court. So I'm still in holding. I've never actually had to be transferred to like a, you know, a pod, they call it. So 9 a.m., we go and they walk me from the cell. It's like under the street to the courthouse. It's like a dungeon, man. It's like you're walking into hell. It's like brick walls. It's just yeah. the whole feeling about it's eerie. And I'm knowing I'm going over here like this is really important. Like if they don't give me bond, then I'm going to be stuck in here for who the hell knows how long. Yeah, well, I, I see and I'm the, in this. I've seen the same thing at uh, the uh, county courthouse here in L.A. Same yeah, thing. yeah, I've seen it. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's uh, it's designed to contain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's intimidating just in and of itself, you know, especially in, in my shoes, you know. And so we go over there, and they put me in this holding room with a lot of these other guys. These other guys are dressed out in, like, the prison uniforms, like the jumpsuits, and their colors, depending on wherever they're at or their levels. They've all got on the prison jumpsuits. I'm still in my street clothes because I haven't been, you know, transferred out of the holding yet. So the one guy was like, you in here for family court? And I was like, yeah, something like that. And still, again, I'm not talking. I'm listening to everybody else talk. And, I mean, man, they're in there talking about who they're going to stab if they get the chance. One guy's talking about he's going to tell the, the cops he's going to testify just so they'll transfer him to Atlanta. But once he gets there, he's not going to testify. He just likes Atlanta's prison food better. Another guy just set his sister on fire, so he's hoping to get a deal if he please. And I'm just sitting there shaking my head like, what in the hell? Like, where the fuck am I? How did I get into this here? So eventually they called my name. So I'm coming in through the courtroom. Again, I'm handcuffed, wrist, down the ankles. You know, you can barely walk. You kind of have to do a little shuffle to get in there. And this is the biggest courtroom I've ever been in in my life. I mean, huge. They bring me in. I see my family in the back sitting on the left side. They take me up to my lawyer. And, I mean, I'm just, like, looking around like overwhelmed as can be. 
Well, they start at it, you know, bond hearing. The people are saying, why I should stay locked up. I'm a danger to the community. I've killed a man in cold blood, yada, yada, yada. My lawyer's fighting back was he protected himself. He was a self-defense. He's owned guns for years. He's had a CWP class. You know, he'd done everything by the letter of the law. Upstanding member of the community. Had a job for 14 years. Um, still employed at that time, anyway. And so when the judge goes to make her decision, I'm thinking I'm like every court case I've ever watched in my whole life, you know, bam, either bond approve or bond deny. She bangs down her gavel and she said, okay, I'll make my decision and let you know. Bam. And so I looked at my lawyer and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he said, I guess that means she'll let us know. <laughs> and like, that's it. I'm, at that point, I'm automatically, I'm being whisked back into the room, you know, because I got to get the next guy in there. So we're in that room, and I asked the lawyer, I'm like, or not the lawyer, but the, the like the bail officer, I'm like, so what does that mean? I was like, you know, get back to me. He's like, ah, oh, you'll probably have me answer in about a week or two. I'm like, a week or two? You've got to be shitting me. Like, I'm going I'm to be getting out of here. And so I'm stressed about that. I get back into holding, and about an hour goes by, and I call my wife, and I'm like, all right, what's going on? And she said, relax. She said, they're giving you bond. She said, but they just decided they were going to do it, so they don't know if the paperwork will get processed, so you might have to stay another night in jail. I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. Well, I'm, people are still getting in and out of jail during this time of the day, so about 9 o'clock, they call my name. You know, they open up the door, Williamson. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm getting out of here. Hop down, I'm going out the door. All right, we're transferring you to C-Pod. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute now. I'm supposed to be getting out of here in the morning. He's like, yeah, maybe. But he's like, I got to transfer you out. He's like, you're the last one that's, you know, they do it on a cycle. Once you get so many people, whoever's been there the longest, then they get transferred to the pods. So at that point, I got to go in, get my orange jumpsuit, my little cup, toothbrush, three-in-one, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toilet paper, <laughs> all the little you know, gifts they give you when you go into a place like that. And I got to go stay one more night in there. So I go in looking for a place to, you know, rest my head. And I see the guy that set his sister on fire and he kind of, you know, nods at me. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. That's good. Hey, what's up, man? I said, anybody on this bunk up top? And he's like, no, you can go up there. So I go up there and I mean, just, Throughout the whole night, I still, like I said, not talking to a whole lot of people, but I'm listening, and, like, the conversations that was going on were really kind of surprising because it was guys, like, trying to push other guys to do right when they got out, like telling that guy, man, you're good at landscaping. You know, when you get out, you need to start your own landscaping business. You know, your record won't matter. It's be something you can make a lot of money at. So there, it wasn't like it was as rough as people, I guess, would maybe think. But at the same time, it's nowhere you want to stay at a three or four. It's not a vacation. Definitely not a vacation. But there at least was guys in there trying to push other guys to do right, you know, when they got out. And this one guy comes up to me, and he's like, hey, do you need a job? And I'm just like, all right, I don't know what the hell that means, but I'm, I'm going to say no. <laughs> and I'm like, no, nah, I'm getting out tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, well, if you're getting out, I don't need to put you on anything. He's like, you know, just don't worry about it. And he said, you know how to work the shower, right? And so I'm not about to tell these people I've never been in here before. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I got it. And he's like, yeah, you know how you put that thing in there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I'm good. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Don't have a clue. <laughs> so I make my way to go in the shower, and what it is is it's like where you press it in. It's like a little valve on the wall. You press it in, and you only have like five seconds to where it automatically starts coming back out, and then the water shuts off. Well, they have some sort of like plastic piece that you can wedge in there to keep it back from coming back out 
I couldn't figure out how the hell to do it. So I was taking like five shower in like five second increments, kept having to push it in, push it out. Long story short, get out the next day. I do get bond. I get out. How much so did they? How much was the bond? It was fifty thousand for uh, one hundred and fifty thousand total. One hundred thousand on the murder charge, fifty thousand on the weapons charge. So I had to come up with I think it was like twelve thousand because our bondsman cut us a deal. So I was like twelve thousand five hundred. I had to come up with to get out. All right, continue. Okay. And which is the lowest you can give for both of those charges, because bond for murder can go up to a million. Uh, but they gave us the lowest they could of 100000 So I get out, and at this time I was still employed by a company called Newcore Steel, and I report to work on the next scheduled day I was supposed to be there, and they called me into the office. And I'm like, well, this ain't good. So they called me into the office, then we go across the street to the, like, the manager's office, and then they proceed to fire me at that point and I was asking him why and he said well it's because of the charges he's like we just can't have you here because of these charges and then he asked me like what was going on so I kind of told him a brief version of the story he's like well I can't imagine what you're going through I'm like well imagine going through it and getting fired on top of it that don't help it any better I promise you that they fired me I've been with that company for 14 years I worked with them in Columbia South Carolina for seven and a half years transferred to the division in Charleston where I was at moved my whole family up here and off a charge they fired me. Now, that wasn't I mean, very that supportive of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very supportive. And they have a gun range on their plant site out there, so they're a big advocate of firearms. But, yeah, for whatever reason that, they chose to go ahead and get rid of me. The only silver lining to them doing that was this company was very good about profit sharing. So about once a year, you would get 10, 15 grand put into your profit sharing. Now you can't get access to that because it's directly put into your 401k. But since they fired me, then I was able to actually access it. So I needed to get in there to access it to pay Mr. Savage's fees. Cause it was 50,000 to take the case, then another 15,000 to get started with witnesses and et cetera, et cetera, to go ahead and get the ball rolling. So we do that. I am freshly fired. Um, I know this is on my record. So there's like any of the bigger companies in the area, there's no use to go to them because they're going to run your record. It's hard enough to get a job, you know, with a clean record now as it is, but with a pending murder trial, it's even way, that way does harder. slow things down. Mm, yeah, it, it, it's, a, yes. it's a little bit of a deterrent. Yeah. You know, when you got a guy that's killed somebody and then a guy that happened. So you're, they're going to oftentimes go with the latter. So I did land a job with this sign company. This is a crazy twist into this. Sign company I'm working for. Basically, he didn't ask me why I left Nucor. I just told him, I said, I was tired of the swing shift because we did do nights and days. I said, I'm tired of swing shift. I want something a little bit more set schedule. So he hired me and didn't run my background. I think he's seen I had a 15-year work history with one company. That doesn't look like a type that's got a shady background that you need to run. Right. So he, he agrees to hire me on. I go in. Things are going good. I'm about six months in. They get a job for a sign, a sign job. Big LED board. Where is it? New course deal, the place I used to work. I'm like, you got to be shitting me. So they get the sign, and he's like, you want to go out there and do the install? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'll, I'll be in the shop. You know, if you need me, call me. So I'm in the shop and working. 
sure enough, they go out there, they're talking. Yeah, there's a guy that works with us now. He said he used to work out here. What's his name? Uh, Wade, I think. Oh, yeah, we know Wade. How's it going? How, did he ever get out of that murder case? Murder case. <laughs> so then they know. And the boss never told me. He never asked me about it. But I knew he knew. And the reason being was anytime we ever had to go do a job on like an Air Force base, you had to supply background checks for people that want to go on that. I never got picked to go on any of those jobs. I got picked to go on everything else. But when it comes to jobs where you have to have backgrounds checked, they never chose me. So I know he knew. But I think by that time, he could tell that I was a good employee. Like I came to work every day. So I think he was kind of... You know, safe to assume I wasn't going to come and just start shooting up the place. You know, right. He kind of knew who I was. Yeah, Mark has a question for you. Um, okay, yeah, so this is six months after your arraignment. Mm-hmm. What What's going on with the case in this six months? Well, the only thing that happened after that, this happened in April. In July, we have a preliminary hearing. We go to the preliminary hearing. And that's just, you can't really divulge evidence and stuff like that there. That's basically where you're just laying out the reasons for the charges. Well, in this preliminary hearing, the detective that was newly promoted, it was a woman, she was newly promoted, she lied on the stand at least five different times that was documented that we can back up that she lied on. One of them was against her own reports that she filled out. She reported that she collected two vials of steroids from the guy on a report that she filled out. Under oath, she said she only collected one. Another story was she said that after the first officer arrived here at the scene that I was I locked myself out of the house which was very untrue. I didn't even lock the door. When I came outside, when the uh, officer was here, the door was open. Another lie was she said that I wasn't allowed to go to the school to pick up my son because I had a violent history. They interviewed the principal after the fact. The principal said he's never said anything about me not being able to come to that school. He didn't even really, he had never even really met me. And that the only person that could authorize someone to not be allowed at the school was him. Now, where she got this from was me and my wife did have an argument one time. The school resource officer at the time overheard this conversation between my wife and another lady, then went and made a report, unbeknownst to my wife at the time, that an employee and her husband were arguing. This is almost like, I guess, you know, be be aware something could come of this. But my wife didn't know she did it. The woman did it on her own volition. She even misspelled my wife's name. That's where that lady got that from, and she turned that report into, I had a violent history, and I wasn't even allowed to go to the school to pick up my son, which all that was fabricated. And you weren't allowed to... She said that on the stand. You weren't allowed to rebut those items at that time? No. Well, he he didn't even know what to rebut because he had never heard of it before. He looked back at me, and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. Like, I've never heard of this before. But yeah, it's it's real different in the preliminary hearing. It's like you're not allowed to rebut. You're just allowed to say the reasons of why you felt the charges were necessary, and then they can come up and and obviously go against that. So it's not like a trial. It's right. it's real different. So once we got to the end, the judge even said, you know, there's not a lot here. She said, but given the circumstances, I'll bind it to trial. So my lawyer at that time tells me, he's like, all right, our next step is what's called a Duncan hearing, which is basically try to get immunity on the grounds of castle law and self-defense. So that's our next step. That step never happened for four and a half years. Whoa. Um, Four and a half years? Yeah. 
I do think COVID played a somewhat of a part um, because they asked my lawyer, they said, do you want to have your Duncan hearing in person in a courtroom or over Zoom? And he said, no, I want to do it in a courtroom. So I do think COVID was some of the reason why it got delayed because, you know, lawyers, especially great, you know, high-profile lawyers, they use that courtroom as their stage. Right. I mean, they, you know, they put on a performance. They, you know, that's what they do. And so he wasn't going to do that shit over Zoom. And so I kept waiting and kept waiting. And, you know, obviously when COVID hit, I actually did lose that job from the sign company because they cut hours. Well, I wound up luckily finding another job because I'm a welder. That's what I've done most of my life. I got another job at a small company, and I went ahead and told that guy up front. I'm like, look, man, I said, I've done this in my last job, and I wasn't necessarily up front with the people. I said, but I'm going to be up front with you. I said, I've got a little bit of a history, and I broke down the story and told it from me. He's like, man, I'm from Texas. He's like, you didn't do nothing that I wouldn't have done. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, good. That's a load off me that I don't have to worry if you're going to see it or read about it or, or whatever. So at that point, I was good. I still work there now, and I'm actually a supervisor there. So my lawyer was telling me, he's like, look, he said, if you're good in your job and you don't necessarily need this put to bed, he said, the longer it goes, the better it'll be. Because the longer you stretch things out, you know, people move. Mm-hmm. People relocate. You know, in some cases, people pass away. I mean, evidence gets lost. Not that he was worried about the case, but he just said, anytime something goes for a long period of time, it's always, you know, worse for the state and better for whoever's on trial. And so for a long time, I just didn't really bother with it. Now, it bothered the hell out of me just thinking about it. But in the meantime, I'd say probably right after COVID, I actually started doing a podcast. And I started getting some interviews with some guys, and I had an opportunity to go to New York. Well, this time, my whole bond conditions when I'm out is I'm on house arrest. I didn't have to wear an anklet, but I was on house arrest. I can only go to doctor's visits, lawyer's visits, and work. And for part-time looking for work, because I was fired, you know, as soon as I got out. But I wasn't allowed to leave the state without notifying, you know, certain people. And so when it got to the point I could go to New York, we asked the solicitor for permission. Now, the solicitor gave me permission to go to New York. So I'm thinking, how much can they really, like, fear that I'm some kind of, you know, crazy maniac if they're letting me go right on to New York where a thousand other people are probably a whole lot more dangerous than I am? But that being said, they did it. So this was in July. I go. I come back. I've got to go again in September. Well, in between that, there's a new solicitor that's put on the case. The solicitor that was on there from the beginning gets transferred. There's this new solicitor that's put on the case. My lawyer calls him for the second time I was supposed to be going. He said, you know, this is getting a little ridiculous. He said, I'm going to make you a deal. He said, I'm going to show you everything we've got. He said, let's meet at the station. He said, I'll bring my forensics guy down from New York. He said, we'll meet at the station and show you everything we have. And we believe it'll be so compelling that there's no reason you would even want to attempt to try to take this to trial and you'll just drop it. And my lawyer even told me, he said, I don't typically do this. He said, this is, but he said, but I feel in this case, it's going to be the best. So we had hired a CSI guy from New York that came down. Basically, the bullet that I told you that hit the refrigerator and hit the wall, they set up like the lasers to where you can trace the bullet path. And it traced it that I was standing right there in the corner where I said I was. And so he basically made a slideshow PowerPoint busting up every reason that they have that I wasn't charged. 
So, like, one of the reasons was they said that um, that, that I said there was signs of, or that we struggled, but the arriving officer said there was no signs of a struggle. Well, he took the first arriving officer's body cam footage and highlighted that there was a shot glass knocked over on the floor, a shot glass knocked over on the counter, plus like a big Manhattan's rocks glass that was knocked over. So that's obviously signs of a struggle. People just don't have glasses laying all over the place in their house, or at least I don't anyway. Uh, another one was the lack of spatter on me because I said we were in close range and I was wearing a white long sleeve t-shirt. Well, the reason there was no spatter is because he was wearing three shirts. So when the bullet goes through, it's going to be hard as hell for spatter to come out towards me through three layers of clothes. And they used that as a real key point of why one of the reasons why they charged me was the lack of spatter on me. And then it also said that I said later that I'd done life-saving measures, but there wasn't any evidence of that. Well, when the cop walked in, he seen the guy laying in the middle of the floor with the towel on his chest. So I told him, I was like, well, who do they think put that towel there? Like, he didn't go get it. Like, there's nobody else in the house. I said, I can't help there was no blood. So his slideshow basically busted up every reason that they gave. Now, we met at the police station. We gave them that PowerPoint. Then at that point, they let my investigator, my lawyer, and our forensics guy go in their evidence room and look at what they had on me. Now, I wasn't allowed to come into there because it, it was a conflict of interest. I wasn't allowed to come in their evidence room. So I leave the police station. I come back to my house. Then they all come to my house. The solicitor is kind of number two up under him and the head investigator for the state all come to my house. And we walked through my kitchen. I basically gave them like a play-by-play -play of what happened. And being in my kitchen really kind of sets the stage because it's a very small kitchen. They could tell by the pictures of where he was laying. They could tell I was standing where I was standing because to my right, the kitchen kind of done a U. To my right was a sink. Well, unbeknownst to me, there was a shell casing that was found in the drain in the sink. So anybody's ever fired a weapon, you know that the shells are ejected to the right and to the back. So I had to be in the corner what I was telling them. Otherwise, there's no way in hell that shell will land in the sink. Right. So that really backed up my story, and I didn't even know that that was there until real late in this investigation. And I pretty much play everything through. We, I had the same glass. I let them feel how heavy that glass was. You know it was not something that would have been easily knocked over. I still had the same refrigerator. I never changed refrigerators so they could see the indentions on that. I never fixed the wall that it hit from the ricochet. And I have put a pack of water up there to simulate the pack of water from, you know, the night it happened. And so it was just real clear that he had to be where he was because had he been further back, the bullets wouldn't have had a chance to separate. And one hit a door and one hit the water from the, the side. If he had been further back, they'd have both hit the door. It proved that he was up close proximity to me. Once they got fired, then they had a chance to V out, to separate. Had it been the other way around and he was further back, then they wouldn't have had that chance. They would have probably both hit the refrigerator. So it really kind of, I think, sent it home for them. And this was around this was around August. It was after I went to New York the first time. And then I wound up going to New York in September, coming back. And then finally, uh, October the 31st, the weekend of Halloween, uh, my lawyer calls me. And he's like, you know, Wade, how you doing? I said, I'm not much at work. You know, it's going good. How about you? And he's like, well, I just wanted to let you know you're a free man. 
And after four years, I think it's like seven, eight months, I don't know the exact number, four years, eight months, finally, they just dismissed the case. We didn't even have to go for an immunity hearing. We didn't have to go for anything. It was case dismissed. So from the time I got arrested in 2018 of April, we had one preliminary hearing, and that was it for almost half a decade. Jeez. And they just dismissed it. Well, the emotional toll on you, I'm surprised, has not been more intense. It, it has, believe me. Um, the podcast, in a way, has really helped me kind of therapeutically because I be, I'm able to talk to people and, and conversate. That was a big thing, man. I'm a social guy. I like going out. I like talking to people. I've always been that way. So to box me into my home for all that time was, I mean, it, that was bad. And the podcast really helped for me to be able to, you know, conversate with people and have an outlet. So that really, really helped. But, yeah, it's, it was tough, man. I mean, the neighborhood that I live in, um, you know, every year when my son goes to school, he goes to a new class, somebody always says, oh, yeah, I know you. Your dad's the one that shot somebody. <laughs> and so it's, you know, they have to live with that. One sheep. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, my daughter, the year all this happened, it was her senior year in high school, so they put a damper on that. So it's like, you know, I'm seeing my daughter graduate, but I'm wondering every year, you know, hey, am I going to be out to see my son graduate? Mm. You know, it's it's a lot. And it's like, you're, it's like you go and get tested for a doctor's visit for terminal cancer and then not not getting your results back for five years. Because at the end of the day, life in prison, I mean, if I'd have got locked up, you know, you're talking 25, 30 years, I doubt very seriously I'd have made it out. So it essentially would have been a life sentence. And you're basically just waiting each day to find out what's going on. And it was it was hell, man. It was pure hell. Wow. Well, there's something that you should uh, take to heart. And it's a, it is a microcosm uh, that Burl and I see uh, and um, listen to every week for the all these years, and that's that. That is that. There's so many instances where the prosecution, where the police, were more interested in the conviction than in the truth. Absolutely. And you apparently had quality people in law enforcement, even though it took forever, that did the right thing in the end. In the yeah. end, yeah. So you yeah, just take end. that to heart. Uh, not, maybe not so much in the beginning, but in the end, the the, prosec- the solicitor that, you know, was agreed to come out and take a look at everything. I mean, I, I appreciate him so much for having an open mind because they didn't even have to agree to do that. Like, that was almost really unheard of. That guy said he hadn't really known this to happen before at all. And uh, so you know, the... At the, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned uh, Willis Wilson, who similarly was accused. Uh, he was accused of being a multiple rapist, uh, which he wasn't at all. Uh, and But what was worse is that he was identified by the victim as being the guy who did it. And he wasn't. But it went to trial. Only took 45 minutes for the jury to come back and say not guilty because there was no evidence against him. And the judge took him out for lunch. <laughs> All right, this has been a fascinating Absolutely story. fascinating. So glad that you uh, finally got this behind you. 
And uh, me too. And, and you remember, I reached out to you, Burrow. This was probably right after it happened, man, years ago. So when I got it dismissed, I wanted to kind of keep you up to date and, and on what was going on. So I appreciate you still keeping me in mind after all these years. Well, I couldn't couldn't forget about you. It was just too bizarre a situation. I'm so glad it's finally done. Congratulations. And enjoy your podcast career. This is fun. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. A hell of a story. Yes, sir. Thank you, guys. It was You're a pleasure. Welcome. Hey, Burl. Yeah. What's next? A Magic Bad Allen of the Demons of Decadence live from the Lighting Up Lounge right here on OutlawRadioLive.com. Take it.